Jack, thanks for joining us today. I am happy to be here. I am calling from Asheville, North Carolina, actually. I'm at my in-laws, and I'm getting 10 hours of sleep every night, and I'm still exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that does happen. Uh, After a semester, you need to be catching up on, uh, you know, some of these things that you have probably been lacking at the end of the school year. And we wanted to talk about this today because you and I got into a conversation about basically what I already said. We think of it as a happy, festive time but actually suicide rates go up at about this time of year. So let's just talk about this idea first and foremost that everything is supposed to be happy and it's wonderful and it's Christmas and it's a wonderful life. And boy, that's not really always true. (laughs) You know, we are at the nexus of our families. We are at the busiest social time. We are burdened by other people's needs and desires and neuroses and expectations. And the more we focus on other people, the less we attend to ourselves, the less we can focus on self-care. But also, we're more interested in doing for others. When, when, we make, when we buy the gifts, we want them to be good gifts. We want, when we bake the cakes, we want them to, to, to taste good, right? When we decorate the tree or light the candles or what, ha- what have you, this is a way of showing love, and we become so outwardly focused mm. that we tend to lose our sense of self and that leads to all sorts of negative consequences, which prevents us from loving other people, but it also prevents us from loving ourselves. That idea that you cannot pour from an empty cup here. If I am giving and giving and giving, eventually I'm going to empty out and then I just can't be a good human to other people either. I think that's right. But I also think that there is a tendency at this time of year to focus on short-term goals and immediate gratification Mm. rather than our medium and our long-term goals. Our our long-term goals, they tend to be abstract, right? That's the New Year's resolution thing that you're talking about. Well, in the future, I will go to the gym three days a week. In the future, I will put uh, $50 away every every paycheck. I still haven't learned when we're so focused on the immediate practicalities, we tend to lose control and we tend to to give – I don't know how to say it to, – to give in to our instincts rather than our – I don't know, our our, our better natures, for for a lack of uh, a good description. Hmm. When you talk about the different types of goals, go into a little bit more detail on that and and what can be problematic with just focusing on a short-term goal. I want to be happy and eat these cookies. Well, that's, I think, a really good example because there's short, there's medium, and there's long-term issues with cookies, right? The short-term issue is they taste good, mm-hmm. they give me a blood sugar boost, they're festive, uh, they, they're they a sign that I'm you know not focused on, on anything but fun. In the long-term, there's all sorts of health problems, right, if you're concerned about your weight or, or diabetes, but also just in terms of if you eat too many cookies and you're not eating enough carrots, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just about... You know, it's about nutrition and those sorts of things. But there's also that medium term goal, which is, you know, you eat too much cookie, too many cookies. And then 45 minutes later, you crash. And what do you do? You eat more cookies. And then 45 minutes later, you crash again. And so that that 
spike in your in your blood sugar leads to depression, it leads to alienation, it leads to frustration, it leads to all sorts of things because you know, philosophers for a very long time talked about the mind-body problem, the, the way that the mind and the body connect and, and work with one another. And historically, the philosophers who were wrong thought that they were, they were radically divided. But one of the things that we've seen in the last 50 years or so is that our body and our mind are directly connected to one another. So depression often comes from our blood sugar or our neurology or other sorts of things and our need to eat or or our need to sort of overindulge in alcohol that comes from our mind and so the medium term dips and ebbs and flows that come from just the example of eating too many cookies has a holistic effect mm. as well as just you know the kind of thing we, we we focus on which is you know we gain too much weight or 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 we're you know again not eating too many carrots well, and then let's talk about this idea, too, that if you have six cookies when maybe one would have been okay, in addition to what's happening, the spiking the sugar, there is that feeling of guilt. And guilt without action can be such a terrible emotion. <laughs> right, right. Well, first of all, I don't want us to condemn cookie eaters, you know, because I, I, I am, I am a very. I made Pfeffernus, and they were delightful. <laughs> I finally understood why right. people like this cookie. Turns out, you need to right. eat them homemade. <laughs> I understand. You know, I, I think that's true of a lot of cookies, yeah. and and the better they are, and the more sort of intimate the process, whether you make them yourself or someone who loves that, who loves you, gives gives them to you. Well, then then there's that more desire to consume because eating someone else's cookies is a kind of intimacy, right? Mm. It's a kind of appreciation, right? You brought me these things. I want to eat them all up. I want to show you that I care for you. There is that element of guilt because we have this confusion between how we think we're supposed to act, how we should act, I don't know, morally or, or culturally, and then what's best for us individually. And so Sometimes we get ourselves in spirals where we're acting according to expectations, but we're not engaged in any sort of self-reflection. And sometimes uh, we're doing the other thing where we're so focused on our self-reflection that we're, we're, we're isolating ourselves from other people. You know, there may be times when eating six cookies is the best thing for us, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. there, may be, there may be times when overindulgence, as long as it's responsible and not self-destructive, is, is the best thing for us. We all know people who just need to let go, right, who need to release, yeah. who need to accept the fact that they can't control everything. And so, again, there's that notion of self-knowledge, of what's best for us in reality as opposed to what we expect is best for us or what we're told is best for us or what we habitually decide is best for us that, you know, may not be the most accurate picture of what we need. Well, I want to go back to what you were talking about in the beginning is this idea, too, that we can be so giving that we sort of can can become a little bit empty. And there's no shortage of, uh, you know, parodies on SNL and what have you about, you know, moms who are up 
at you know two o'clock in the morning and making sure that the reindeer tracks through the fresh snow to make these little magical you know whatever and then they look terrible in the photo or they won't get in the photo because <laughs> they're right. tired and they've, they've done all of these things for all these other people and you know all the Hollywood movies would have you believe that that alone is enough but I want to talk about this idea of when to realize that being selfless can have negative impacts. I think sometimes the best thing that a mother can do is take a nap. <laughs> I think the best thing that a parent can do sometimes is to put their kids in front of a movie and say, entertain yourselves, right? We have these visions, especially in our culture of motherhood, of this competitive mother, of being <laughs> surveilled by other mothers, mm. of it, in a very different way that, that, that fathers uh, interact. There is this sense of competition often. And so we get these rom-coms, these holiday movies, these all, all these stories where, where the mother does everything, and it's incredibly unrealistic. And so then you get this cultural sort of trope of, well, you know, mom needs her glass of wine. Right. You know, mm -hmm. be, it's wine o'clock somewhere. Right. <laughs> you know, and I don't have any objection and I don't think anyone, you know, unless they need to, you know, I don't have, have any objection to, to having a glass of wine. But if wine is the way you get through the day, then that's a problem. Right. And mm -hmm. so for a mother who is or a parent who is incredibly giving to say, look, I need an hour to close my eyes. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to come back. That may be the best thing for everybody, for the person who needs the nap, but also for everyone else, because then there's not that anxiety. There's not that exhaustion. And so one of the central uh, axes between the self and other, one of the central tensions between being an, indi an individual in, inside a community and, and, and being concerned with yourself is when this self-care is for yourself and when the self-care is for other people. And we tend to see those things as in competition, but very often those needs overlap, right? I mean, healthier workplaces are more efficient workplaces. Better work-life balance leads to more profits. Uh, caring about your own health and your own needs, that leads to a, a calmer family and a healthier family. Parents having their own hobbies. Uh, kids having private time, uh, the, the ability to take a walk after you open the gifts for, um, and, and just be by yourself for 20 minutes, that makes everything better for everybody. And so we have to get past this idea that self-advocacy is in competition with other people's needs and look for the ways in which ourself and our others overlaps that everyone is better off. Now, that's not always doable, mm -hmm. but it is, I think it's, it's achievable much more often than we'd like to give it credit for. <laughs> well, I think, too, we need to talk about the listening skills of the other people involved in these types of interactions. And I'll pick on my own family here. My daughter was home for Thanksgiving, and there was this moment of, you know, I had done that classic, like, mom has to do everything and get up at like 2 o'clock in the morning and make her favorite uh, mac and cheese with the special 10-year age cheddar and all these things. And um, then like the kitchen was a disaster. And I was, and I was clear. I was saying, hey, I need help 
cleaning the kitchen. I have done this and this, and I would appreciate, like I was using my words, I was using a regular tone of voice, and, uh, you know, it didn't get heard and it didn't get heard. Meantime, the cat comes in the room, makes the tiniest little noise and and Addie is just Sophie what do you need mom you're ignoring her and she needs water and you know just like she heard that <laughs> um, but then the, the the time that she did actually clean, clean the kitchen was finally after I just I had gone to bed angry and I was annoyed and I had felt uh, ignored all day and then that's when she cleaned and I sort of feel like I'm in this circle of I had to act up to get the attention that I needed instead of just being able to calmly ask for what I need. Well, this is why the idea that this is a special time of year is a little bit of an illusion, right? We tend to think of this period as having different rules and different behaviors and different expectations. But if your family doesn't listen to you for the other 50 weeks of the year, they're not going to hear you in these two <laughs> If they don't develop the habit of partnership, if they don't develop the habit of, of attending to people's needs, maybe before they're asked or when they're asked the first time, then they're not going to do it now. And then you add the stress of wanting to love, wanting to express, wanting to have fun, and then people blow up, right? So, so this, again, is this idea that, that on the one hand – there is something special going on in this time of year. But on the other hand, all it does is increase the level of, of intensity of our day-to-day lives beyond what, what we're, we're used to. So if you look at this time period and you say, hey, my kids aren't helping in the kitchen or my spouse constantly gets me gifts that's really for, that are really for them, not for me, <laughs> right? This is something that you have to address the rest of the year. This is something that you have to work on over time. And that, again, is that short-term, medium, and long-term goal sort of thing, Mm -hmm. right? Where you say, what were the things that set me off now? And what can I do in the spring, in the summer, in the fall to help heal, to help advocate for myself, to to help describe my needs, and to get the people around me to hear it so that next time we don't hit those same patterns. Now, you know, parents and children, right, there are, it's always complicated, (laughs) right? But, But nevertheless, the rules you establish on, you know, in the middle of June are the rules you follow in the middle of December. And this idea that that we're somehow uniquely good or uniquely special or uniquely caring during the holiday season, it's not true because all we really are is intensifying our ingrained habits. And when those are dysfunctional or, or when those marginalize people or when those lead to alienation, it only makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So what do you recommend as a philosopher when you talk about what I think sounds like understanding boundaries. So the first thing to do, and this is going to sound technical, but we we have to distinguish between what philosophers call epistemology and metaphysics. Epistemology is what we can know and metaphysics is what, what's real, right? So, uh, the, the standard example I use in class, and I may have talked about this before is there's four positions on God. We can know God exists and we know it. God exists and we don't know it. God doesn't exist and we know it. God exists and we don't know it. So cookies are good and we know it. Cookies are not good and we don't know it. You know, cookies are not are good and we 
don't know it. I, I messed up the order, but you know what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. right? So, so part of what we have to do is take some time, reflect on ourselves, and ask not what we think we need, but what we really need. Now, that's hard. It's hard to look in the mirror. It's hard to, to look at our shortcomings. It's hard to get past those, that sense of guilt, those senses of, of, of anxiety, the sense of failure, to get through all of that immediate reaction and say, what is really healthy for me? What is a healthy relationship? A healthy for, relationship for one person may be, a, may be an unhealthy relationship for another person. So what do I need and what do I need in this period of my life as opposed to that period of my life? What kind of attention do I require? What kind of alone time do I require? And ask yourself those questions throughout the year at different times so that they become so much a part of you or at least you're so aware of it that your knowledge coincides with what's real. Because if what you think you want is to make the perfect cake and everyone is happy, well, it doesn't work like that because first of all, no one can ever make the perfect cake. But second of all, even (laughs) if you make the perfect cake, you can't control anyone else's reaction. (laughs) You can't decide, right, A, that people will like it, or B, that the person who's eating the cake isn't really angry about something else and is going to take it out on you. So you have to know what you really need, and you have to engage in that process of self-exploration and of setting boundaries and of setting expectations throughout the year so that when it builds up and when it intensifies, you have those habits and those, and you're able to articulate your need and you're able to be heard the first time around. So when you talk about self-exploration, are you talking journaling? Are you talking there is a philosophical rubric for this? <laughs> you know, um, there's a whole bunch of people who have tried to make a lot of money answering that question, and, um, and I am not one of them. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is there's a whole range of things, and some of that has to go with your personality, right? So journaling, um, art, uh, talking with your friends, long walks, running, yoga, meditation, therapy. I think every person should be in therapy and should, and should have that neutral voice that they can talk to. There's reading novels and watching movies and, and seeing the mirror of yourself. And the, the wonderful thing about literature is that you can imagine yourself in other people's circumstances, and then you learn about other people and you learn about yourself. And so if you're constantly only escaping, if you're constantly only you know, watching sports so you don't have to deal with your anxiety or, or watching um, soap operas because it's so distant from your own life and you don't have to, have, to, have to look at yourself, then in the long run, that escapism is harmful. I think escapism is wonderful. I'm a fan of Star Wars and Marvel, right? That's pure escapism. Right. And so escapism is wonderful, but you have to do that kind of work. And so, yes, philosophers have tried from Socrates onward. Uh, philosophers have tried to find the, the, the mechanism and the tools to, as, as, as the old fashioned expression goes, know thyself. Right. To, to, to be aware of who you are. The Eastern traditions um, have done that, too, although they do it in a different way. So the question isn't what the philosophers recommend. The question is what works best for your personality. If you write a journal on every night and you are consumed with anxiety that someone is going to find it and read it or you 
are made very uncomfortable by putting your deepest, darkest thoughts on a paper because you don't want that, you know, out in the world, then journaling isn't for you. A conversation is for you or talking to, to, to God or, or, or talking to, I don't know, Harry Potter, right? You know, I mean, you can, you can engage in, in all these exercises. And so we have to attend to our physical selves. We have to attend to our mental selves and we have to attend to the, the overlap between the two. And that's why, for example, scientists have shown that meditation has had incredible neurological and physiological physiological consequences. It's yeah, what not is the happening that, there? So um, it's been a long time. There's a wonderful, wonderful book called Buddha's Brain, B-U-D-D-H-A, Buddha's Brain, that talks about all of the different ways in which meditation affects the brain and, and, and the neurology that... Um, calms down anxiety, calms down expression, helps lower blood pressure, all that kind of stuff that, that cognitive scientists and neurologists have found actual real scientific evidence that that stuff works, right? And so what that shows is the body can change the mind just as the mind can change the body. If I were to say to you, hey, look, take an antidepressant and it'll change your brain chemistry, most people will be like, oh, okay, fine, that's how it works. But meditation, self-reflection, yoga, these long-standing practices that have been around for millennia, they also change the brain chemistry. You know, I myself, I struggle with depression, which I've talked about on Y Radio for uh, off and on for a while, and I have managed at various different points in my life uh, depression through exercise. And then sometimes I need to go on the antidepressant because it's not working. But my goal, my personal goal, which is right for me and not necessarily right for anyone else, is to is to use the exercise to get off that antidepress antidepressants. If I were a better meditator, that would help me as well. I know you work on meditation, you work on yoga. And so you're a good advocate for the ways in which those behaviors affects your body. And so all of that's to say that self-reflection and self-advocacy are two sides of the same coin, and they involve a whole range of different processes and a whole range of different habits that are right for some people and not right for another. And so the first part of self-exploration is discovering what mechanism of self-exploration works for you. Journal, uh, journaling may work for someone. Yoga may work for someone. Talking on the phone for an hour may work for someone. Uh, talking to their priest or their rabbi or, or, or their imam may work for someone. And you just have to figure out what that is and the, what, what your family and what your community can do to support you is give you the space to have that exploration. Don't make fun of you. Don't ridicule you. Don't you know, um, give you a hard time if it doesn't work out the first, second, or third time. Have, you know, have your family say to you, you're on the self-exploration journey. We're going to give you the space to do that, and we're going to be supportive of you when it fails, and we're going to be supportive of you when it succeeds. And if you can insist on that, you are in a very long – you've taken many, many steps already down the journey. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. And he joins us periodically on Main Street for a philosopher's spin on what's on our minds. Jack, thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure as always.